You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode number 10. I'm your host, Russell Eileen Willems, and today on the show, I'm talking with Leszek Pavlovich, an, an archaeology technologist from the American Southwest. Uh, we're going to be talking about his work with photogrammetry and reflectance transformance imaging, or RTI. Welcome to the show, Leszek. Thanks for having me, Russell. So, Leszek, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started experimenting with photogrammetry in archaeology? It actually started um, seven years ago when Microsoft put up a website called um, photosynth.net. And uh, what that is, is you um, take a set of photos of an object or an area and upload it to the site, and it creates what's called a photo cloud, where it figures out what angle you were shooting all the photos at, generates a... um, a very simple 3D model, and then allows you to um, uh, view the photos at the angles at which they were taken at. I can try and bring up an example of that. That would be great. Okay. We're experimenting with the screen share feature here. So for listeners of the audio podcast, there'll be some extra content that we'll have as a YouTube video that you can watch as well. Okay, so um, website is photosynth.net, and... Um, I was doing a dig at the time um, at Cordes Junction in Arizona, a fairly substantial pithouse village, and I took a fairly reasonable set of photos. I took about 130 photos of a pithouse that we were excavating and uploaded them to um, Photosynth. So this is um, a photo cloud, and as I move my cursor to various locations, you can see little squares. Those correspond to photos that I took. And if I click on one of those, it will zoom in on that particular area. And you can zoom in closer or zoom further away. And uh, what it's actually doing is it's it's referenced all these photos to what's called a point cloud, which is a 3D representation of that particular um, model. So um, this is a very, very rudimentary form of of, um, photogrammetry but it was the best that we could do back in, you know, in six or seven years ago. And what the, all the photogrammetry software does is it takes multiple photos and figures out using perspective and multiple angles where the camera was located relative to all the features and then uses that information to generate a full 3D model. Now, um, more recently, there are services and there's also software that allows you to actually create full models on your own computer or using a web service. And I've done that with um, the set of photos that I took here. And let me bring that up. Okay, so um, this, this is a, um, an excavation in um, central Arizona. And uh, basically the digging's been done and I was commissioned to go in and do a 3D model of the Pueblo that they excavated. And all this was generated using photos from ground level. You know, there's, there's no aerial stuff involved. And if we zoom in a little bit closer, you basically have the freedom to go in and rotate the model, tilt it, and also you can generate a virtual overhead orthographic view as if you were basically looking straight down 
on the model. And again, you took all those photos at ground level. You didn't have poles or balloons or drones or kites or anything. Oh, nothing like that. I had a ladder to help me get a little bit better elevation, but actually that really wasn't necessary. I've done perfectly uh, acceptable 3D models using just ground level stuff with uh, no ladders. And um, the software I'm using is a program called Photoscan, and um, it's generally accepted as the best possible um, you know, software currently available to do this kind of work. There's a number of different options, but um, I've tried some of them in, in demo form and they haven't worked that well. Photoscan is really nice. The downside of Photoscan is that it's uh, reasonably expensive. The basic version costs $179, and the more advanced version that's used for um, aerial um, 3D models and for um, geographic um, calibration is about $3,000. However, if you're a member of a, an academic community or if you're a nonprofit, you can get a, a substantially discounted uh, version of both of those. I think it's $79 for the basic version and $500 for the advanced version. If you just want to um, play with, um, the, uh, with the general concept of photogrammetry, there are a number of free programs and free services out there that will let you do that. Yeah, I know, for instance, AutoCAD has their, what used to be PhotoFly, and I think it's now 123D Catch. Um, and there's some differences with that. I think that one, you actually upload your photos to their server. Uh, yeah, well, doing uh, the processing for photogrammetry is an extremely, extremely um, time and computer-intensive um, effort. Really fast computer, about 4 gigahertz, uh, quad-core, 8-thread, with 32 gigabytes of RAM, and running the last model I did that I showed you took about 24 hours of continuous um, processing time. So, wow, that is not messing around. Yeah, it's, it's not definitely not messing around. A service like 123D Catch is nice because all the computers at Autodesk handle all the basic processing stuff. Um, there are some drawbacks, though, with 123D Catch. Uh, the biggest one is that you're limited to only 75 photographs, which means that you're also limited in terms of the total resolution that you're capable of getting. Um, the model I showed you had 5 million mesh faces, and it's actually downsized from the original one. Uh, the maximum number of, of, of little mesh faces you can have with 123D Catch is 500,000. And um, there's a free version of 123D Catch that has... Um, the limitation that anything you put up there is both publicly visible and is also the property of one of Autodesk. They, they can use it for any purpose. I believe they've got a private pay plan that will let you sort of keep stuff private and let you um, use it any way you want. There's also limitations on commercial uses as well, too. I've got a, actually a couple lists of programs as well, too. Um, there is mm -hmm. a Linux distribution called Archex, A-R-C-H-E-S, which has a something called the Python Photogrammetry Toolkit, which is a sort of a simplified um, graphical user interface that allows you to create 3D models. The software that it uses is a little bit buggy and sometimes doesn't really produce optimal results, but it is something that you can try. Um, on the Windows side, there's a program called Airphoto SE, and um, I'm not gonna give links to these, you can basically just go ahead and Google Airphoto SE, one word, and um, it is designed primarily to take aerial photographs and stitch them together into an orthophotograph and also create a digital terrain model. But you can also use it in general to create 3D models of, um, of, of, 
of, of an architectural feature or an object or just a general area. So it's using some of the same principles, you know, taking photographs and kind of finding where the angles match up. Just it's maybe designed for more of an orthographic top-down view. It, yes, it is. Like, um, but it will generate a 3D model. And I've gotten reasonable results from that. It, it's, it's sort of like an overarching program that takes other programs and kind of creates this Frankenstein monster that's able to process this stuff and create 3D models. Um, there is a, um, if you're um, in a nonprofit or if you're in a university institution, uh, Autodesk actually makes a free advanced version of 123D Catch called Recap and Recap 360 that uh, is good not just for generating 3D models, but also is good for looking at and analyzing uh, LiDAR data. And Very cool. So you can kind of use different sensor packages with that one. Yep. And there's also a couple of um, web services in addition to 3D Catch that allow you to upload stuff and create more detailed models. Uh, one of them is called ARC3D, one word. And the other one is uh, CMP MVS Web Service. And the idea with these is you sign up for the service, um, you upload your photos, They've got computers that do all the number crunching, and then you know, anywhere from a few minutes to a few hours later, you get an email saying, hey, you can now download your, um, uh, your, your model, and then you can load into software on your computer and play around with it a little bit more. So with all of these different software packages, um, do you still have the same or similar process for creating the photographs that go in to these models? And about how many photographs, I know you said there's 5 million mesh faces um, in the model that you just showed us. How many photographs does that equate to, and about how long did that process take? Okay, the uh, the five million mesh faces is actually downsized from the original, which was 65 million mesh faces, and um, that's really pushing the limits of what most computers can handle. I mean, it'll display and turn very, very slowly. The number of mesh faces is going to depend on a number of parameters. It'll depend partially on the number of photographs you take, and that in turn will be a function of the total amount of area that you want to cover in your uh, photogrammetric model. For a, um, a small feature or a small artifact, you could easily get away with only 15 or 20 photographs and get a reasonable model. For the uh, model that I showed, fairly large area, fairly extensive, I wound up taking uh, about 4,000 photographs and wound up using about uh, 1,600 of them in generating the model. And that's one of the reasons it takes so long, because the more photos it takes, the more time the computer takes to figure out the matching points in the photographs, what angles were taken, and then generating the full 3D model. So kind of different resolutions for different uses. And that's interesting that it only takes about 15 to 20 for a small artifact. Um, whenever you're out in the field, how do you make a decision about when you've done enough? Or do you typically shoot for as much coverage as you can? Um, you can always, uh, my philosophy is shoot as many photographs as you possibly can because electrons are cheap and time is valuable. So if, if I take too many photographs, I can always chop out some. Um, if I take too few, it means I'll have to go back. And in fact, on this um, the model that I showed, I went, I shot, I think, 3,000 photographs and then um, decided uh, now there's a couple areas where I'm missing coverage and had to go back and shoot a few thousand more. And then from those kind of come up with a, a set that covered everything and gave me the resolution that I was really looking for. And one thing I noticed about your model is I didn't see any people in the photographs. Was that intentional or was that a function of, did you have everybody clear out from areas you were photographing and then stitch those all together? Um, on the first set of photographs, I had somebody helping me and um, the software 
basically relies on what you're photographing to be standing still. So if you have people that are moving around, it will generally be able to not be able to say, okay, I've got multiple angles of that person because they've moved from one location to another and not include those. However, sometimes I've had a couple of models where somebody stood in, in, a, in a particular location a little bit longer than I would have liked them to, and they'll show up. But you can always load the model into an editor and chop them out so that that, that doesn't distract them. So if you have a disembodied hand from an excavator sitting in one of the frames, and it ends up you know, that they were there for a little while, you can then chop that part of the model out and fill it back in from other, other photographs? Uh, it, you can. Um, it, it's a mix. I mean, sometimes if you, you chop out the actual 3D model, and then you go off and you do a little bit of Photoshop work to sort of you know, fill in the, the, the spaces where a, a disembodied um, you know, body might be lying on top of the surface to sort of clean it up. And you can also do things like um, if you've got a dirt pile that um, you don't want to have in your model because it's really just you know, backfill dirt that wasn't moved before you shot it, you can you know, go in and edit it and sort of squish it down to the correct level. So it's partially letting the computer kind of algorithm figure out what to interpolate and then having a human go in and correct the model and kind of massage it a little bit. Hey everyone, I'm back with Jordan Harbinger from The Art of Charm. Jordan, we've been growing our listener base over the last few months. Why don't you tell everyone again what they can get out of listening to The Art of Charm podcasts? Hey, so what we do at The Art of Charm, especially on the show, is we take tools that ultra-high performers use and we make them accessible and we teach them to you. So what we primarily specialize in is relationship building, which is powerful for people in your field because any, well, any academic field or any field, period, because as everyone knows, you only, it, it's all about who you know, right? And most people say that like, well, it's all about who you know, and they don't like that because they're on the losing side of that equation. What we want to do is put you on the winning side of that equation where you say, wow, I'm glad it's all about who you know because maybe this isn't the strongest or maybe I don't want to sleep under my desk and try to outwork everybody or maybe I'm doing both of those things but I still want an edge. Your relationships are what's going to deliver that. So we teach people how to do that, especially people who have kind of an analytical mindset like a lot of people you might know, if you know what I mean and they can apply these very practical skills. We don't say things like, just put yourself out there. I don't do that. I say, all right, what you're gonna do is this, and then you're gonna get this information, you're gonna connect these people together, you're gonna follow up in this amount of time, and you're gonna say this. And that makes it a heck of a lot easier because there's no guesswork and there's no fingers crossed, hope this works type of system. It's a real system. Awesome. Check out the Art of Charm podcast wherever you get podcasts and at www.artofcharm.com. What are these models typically used for? Is it still such a new area that people are figuring out what the utility is? Well, um, I wish uh, Doug was able to um, make this uh, podcast. Uh, he just did a blog post on some photogrammetric work they did at Walnut Canyon where they uh, did – there were some areas where they could bring a LiDAR scanner in and get a LiDAR model of a cliff dwelling, but there were some areas where they didn't feel like uh, it was safe to haul a $200,000 LiDAR scanner so they did photogrammetric models, and then they loaded them into uh, AutoCAD and used uh, AutoCAD to basically trace out every single um, rock in a stone wall and all the features, and also have this calibrated. So basically, you had a 3D, you know, drawing of that particular model. 
another way that it's being used is um, for people who um, excavate. Say, for example, if you're digging down a pit house, and it's a really complicated structure with multiple floors and overlapping um, levels, um, you can basically excavate one level, do a 3D model, go down another level, do another model, and then when, once all that's done, you'll be able to go back and recreate the whole process of the excavation and see what features appear and disappear as you go down to different levels. So that's interesting. You can actually use these photographs and the resulting models to recreate kind of the process of excavation, kind of the decisions that were made? I mean, you know, I mean, you, you certainly you take photographs and you make drawings as you're going along, but there's almost no substitute for having an actual 3D representation that you can take a look at and rotate and see different um, uh, aspects of. So whenever you take the time to build these models, uh, what can they be viewed in on the other hand? Is it something like a, a 3D PDF? Or I know Doug Gann, who you mentioned before, and Rachel Opitz, Opitz from CAST have experimented with using game engines like the Unity uh, game engine to view it like in a 3D web browser and even to walk around in some of these areas uh, virtually. Yeah, that, that's something that looks really interesting, really exciting. I haven't actually played around with it yet. It's a little bit, um, it, it'll take some time for me to figure it out. Um, I mainly use, um, uh, many of these programs have a built-in viewer. For example, Photoscan has the ability to view the model. There are also a number of uh, free programs out there that will allow you to take a look at and manipulate models. Um, the one I use more than any other one is one called um, Cloud Compare, and there's also, which is a very, very sophisticated program with lots of features, but also has a separate viewer program called CC Viewer. Very high speed, allows you to spin models and actually go into like a, a walk around mode and a look around mode to examine them. For editing and doing other work, there's a program called Mesh Lab and another one called Mesh Mixer from Autodesk, which is not just a viewer, but is also an editor that lets you uh, chop things out and smoosh things down and clean up a mesh that you've generated. So on the back end, whenever you're cleaning up these models and these meshes, um, what does the time budget look like in comparison to actually taking the photographs? Is it more on the back end correcting the models or more on the front end actually collecting the data for the models? Um, depends on how much work you have to do on the model. Um, I did a number of um, artifact models for the Museum of Northern Arizona a while back, and um, some of them came out very, very nicely. Other ones had a lot of cleanup work to do. If there are shiny or reflective surfaces on what it is that you're taking a photograph of, those tend to generate artifacts. And for those, you really need to go in and sort of like swoosh the bumps down and smooth off the surface to make it look good. Um, other times I've generated models that look absolutely perfect the way they come out and require no more work other than maybe editing out a little bit of the superfluous information. So it sounds like there part of the technique is understanding when you're out in the field taking photographs what the impact that's going to be later such as the lighting condition or whether you're taking pictures of reflective objects. Are there any tips that you kind of use in the back of your mind when you're taking photographs to compose shots or to make sure that there's always a different landmark in view in the back of the photograph? Um, depends on the software. Photoscan, um, most programs require that you have items visible in the background, and they use that as kind of a reference to, um, to help orient the camera positions. Photoscan is a little bit better than those in that you don't need to necessarily have as much background information. Uh, for example, when shooting a, a small artifact, um, I like to do it by putting it on a turntable and rotating it and snapping photographs. Most 
uh, photogrammetric pro programs will have problems with that. Photoscan will not. You can basically tell it, ignore all the stuff in the background, just take a look at the object, and it, it can take that information and generate a high-quality 3D model. Um, more generally, uh, you don't actually need a fancy camera for uh, doing this kind of work. Um, a standard point-and-shoot can actually give you reasonably good results. Um, take as many photos as you possibly can. Uh, take them from different positions. Don't stand in one location and kind of rotate your camera because it needs to have the camera moving relative to the object to be able to, to sort of triangulate the uh, coordinates on the object and generate a full 3D model. Um, if the lighting is bright enough, you should uh, reduce your um, aperture to as low a level as you can to increase the total depth of field. Because if something is out of focus, uh, it's not going to be able to generate a really good 3D model. And um, lighting is always tricky, uh, especially if um, it's a sunny day. If I can, I prefer to shoot in uh, cloudy conditions because you get more uniform lighting that way. If that doesn't work, then I will take the photos into a program like Lightroom and boost up the shadow detail a little bit to sort of bring out the missing details. Yeah, a lot of the software actually automatically downsizes photos to uh, a much lower resolution than you give it. Uh, for example, Photoscan, um, if you run on a what they call high resolution, it actually divides the total pixel count by a factor of four from the original one. If you do it on Ultra, it does the original one, but Ultra can literally take you a week to process a full model. So it, it, it may give you higher resolution, but it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's just going to be too slow. Um, other programs have a maximum um, acceptable pixel size for the photographs of about 5 to 6 megapixels. I think the, the largest that 123D Catch takes is 6 megapixels. So um, shooting at you know 24 or 36 megapixels makes absolutely no sense at all. In other words, you don't need a fancy digital SLR. A plain point-and-shoot that's not too crappy will get you good results. And I've seen people getting reasonable results with just using uh, cell phone photos or even cell phone videos. Now that's really interesting because that's typically something you know every field crew has is you know one point and click at least, and then everybody's got a cell phone or smartphone uh, mm -hmm. practically. Yeah, uh, in fact, the one two three D catch has a, um, a, a iPhone and Android apps that allow you to take pictures and upload them to the server and then get back a three D model. So to get started, is that kind of the process you would recommend? Is experimenting with kind of the cameras you already have out in the field and using some of these techniques, but then using a web service like 123DCatch or some of the other programs that you mentioned? That would be a perfect way to start. In fact, that's, that's probably the way that I started. Um, I didn't get the uh, PhotoScan software until about a year and a half ago, but um, starting off with 123DCatch, sort of getting a feeling for what photos will give you good results, how to shoot the photos, you know, that kind of experience will be easily translated to more advanced software as you move into it. Yeah, it seems like a great way to kind of prove the utility of that kind of recording method before spending a lot of either grant money or your client's money going out and doing that. Speaking of which, uh, you mentioned that the model that you showed us was from a excavation in the Southwest. Was that a cultural resource management excavation? It was. It, it's um, um, a highway expansion that's going to be taking place in the next few years. And... Um, this uh, Pueblo was probably the largest feature in the affected area and uh, was excavated over a good part of last year. 
And so was that type of modeling something the client requested or was that something that you and maybe some of the other CRM archaeologists had to kind of put in the proposal and justify? Um, this was, uh, the client didn't request it, but the CRM company put money into the budget to do this kind of work um, on that. Neat. And then with the resulting model, uh, do you know where that's going to end up as far as, you know, the BLM and other maybe DOT transportation organizations? I don't know of anybody that really has a facility set up to store these types of, of digital models besides, you know, burning it to a DVD and putting it on a paper archival shelf. Um, I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen with it. I'm sure it's going to be presented to the client and they'll get a copy of it. Um, there are um, web services that allow you to put these kind of models up online. There's a, a website called sketchfab.com that lets you upload 3D models for, um, uh, uh, to, to share with other people. You can also set them to be private and only shared by a limited number of people. And you can also annotate them as well too. You can put little notes on them and uh, sort of highlight specific features on those. So this would be a good tool for, um, you know, public outreach or just for public education in general. You know, we can show this is what we're doing and these are what all the little features on this particular model need. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag Archaeotech or tag at ArcPodNet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.